Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. This is Dr. Dan. I love Yogi Berra. He had a way with words and phrases that simultaneously defied logic and the English grammar. What endures from his prolific one-liners and endears him to most of us are the pearls of wisdom cleverly hidden in his perpetual combinations of the non-sequitur and impossibly mixed metaphors. Deja vu all over again accurately describes the repetitive, inaccurate, dishonest, illogical, and unconstitutional rhetoric that inevitably follow any incident in which a villain, thug, idiot, psychopath, sociopath, schizophrenic, or otherwise evil or vengeful person uses a gun to kill at least three people, especially if those victims are children. Incidentally, you don't, hear too, you don't hear it too often with terrorists as they apparently are allowed or even expected to use a large variety of weapons of mass destruction to inflict death and destruction on innocents without the calls for control of their tools of the trade. But that's an issue for a different discussion. Every shooting in soft targets, such as schools, malls, movie theaters, and concert halls, is followed by a strident call for new gun laws that even their opponents often admit would not have prevented the incident from occurring. If confronted with the obvious question, what is the purpose of a law that would not have prevented the shooting and will not prevent future shootings? The usual answer is some emotional plea that hides the true agenda. Why do you need weapons of war in the hands of ordinary people? Or we just need to do something, anything, so that this tragedy never happens again. One never hears collectivists offering common-sense solutions. We know that a gun-free zone is an invitation to anyone with murder on his mind. A gun-free zone says, come on in. There is no one here who has the necessary tools to stop you. If the shooter is the only person with a gun, he doesn't need a 30-round magazine to murder dozens of innocents. Personally, I like this quote from Robert Heinlein, An armed society is a polite society. Manners are good when one may have to back up his axe with his life. Although not always true in real life, there is a true deterrent to putting up a home security sign 
even before the system has been installed. Of course, we all know that the collectivists cannot achieve their dreams of one-world socialist government unless the American people are disarmed. Armed people cannot be enslaved without a fight, which just might end up killing the would-be oppressor. History is always instructive. Every dictator in history disarmed the population as soon as he was able to do so for obvious reasons. Unfortunately, human beings are not a peaceful species, and the same creativity that allowed us to devise systems to reach the moon have given us a variety of weapons of mass destruction, some of which could even destroy all mankind. Undeniably, it is the naturally natural law right of every individual to obtain and use the means to protect himself and his family from harm. And that's my opening message. My guest on Freedom Forum Radio is Bob Levy, chairman of the board of directors of the Cato Institute. He joined Cato as a senior fellow in constitutional studies in 1997 after 25 years in business. In 1966, Levy founded CDA Investment Technologies, a major provider of investment information and software, and served as its CEO until 1991. He then attended George Mason's School of Law, where he was chief articles editor for the Law Review and class valedictorian. Levy achieved his JD in 1994. The next two years, he clerked for Judge Roy Lamberth, on the U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., and for Judge Douglas Ginsburg on the U.S. Court of Appeals. From 1997 until 2004, Levy was adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, National Review, and Washington Post, and many other publications. And Levy has also discussed public policy on national radio and TV programs, including ABC's Nightline, Fox's The O'Reilly Factor, PBS's NewsHour, and NBC's Today Show. His latest book, which I have read and I recommend to all of you, is The Dirty Dozen, How Twelve Supreme Court Cases Radically Expanded Government and Eroded Freedom. Levy served as co-counsel in the District of Columbia versus Heller, the successful Supreme Court challenge to Washington, D.C.'s gun ban. Bob Levy, you have been a guest on Freedom Forum Radio in the past, and it is a pleasure and an honor to have you again here on Freedom Forum Radio to discuss issues related to mass shootings and the Second Amendment. Well, Dr. Dan, it's uh, all my pleasure, uh, particularly a pleasure because uh, you are well-informed about the issues and because you are a gracious host and allow your guests ample opportunity to express their viewpoints, sometimes even when those viewpoints don't agree with your own. So it uh, is indeed a uh, pleasure to be joining you, and uh, hope we can have a, a fruitful discussion about the Second Amendment and about gun control in the aftermath of the Parkland uh, atrocity down here in Florida. Well, I appreciate your coming on again. Uh, every time you and I meet, either whether it's in person or over the radio, it turns out to be a pretty interesting and cogent discussion of issues that mean a lot to to the people 
who listen to this program and to the people in general, whether they hear it or not. You know, the Second Amendment is at the core of all our discussions uh, at, at this point on this program. And as you know, it is part of the Bill of Rights, which was demanded by many of, the, many of the ratifying conventions as part of the ratification process of our Constitution. Looking at the Constitution itself and the Bill of Rights, the Constitution is kind of the nuts and bolts, uh, the operating manual of how the federal government works on a daily basis, what it can do, what it cannot do, how it goes about conducting business of, an, as the, of the nation as a whole. To me, the Bill of Rights is really the most important part of the Constitution because it defines the relationship between the federal government and we the people as individuals and the states in which we choose to live. So from a historical perspective, Bob Levy, why, is, why was such an important part of the Constitution not part of the original document? Well, the Bill of Rights wasn't added until 1791, which was two years after the original Constitution was ratified. Uh, the founders added a Bill of Rights as an extra precaution, even though James Madison, the father of the Constitution, among others, uh, initially thought that the addition of a Bill of Rights was unnecessary. And he thought that for three reasons. First, he argued that some rights like life, liberty, and property, were part of our natural rights and our common law heritage, which we possessed before the Constitution was written and which we never relinquished. Second, he considered that other rights, like free exercise of religion, for example, didn't have to be guaranteed because the Constitution was a document that enumerated the federal government's powers and the federal government had no enumerated power to control, for example, religious exercise. And, said Madison, if there were no government power to restrict religion, then it wouldn't be necessary to have a right that protected against such restriction. Then the third reason, Madison was also concerned that the listing of certain rights might be misinterpreted to mean that we didn't have any rights that weren't listed. And since it wouldn't be possible to list each and every right, the founders got around that problem by adding the Ninth Amendment to the Bill of Rights. And it says that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So there are unenumerated rights that are protected even if they are not expressly listed in the Bill of Rights. Today's discussion, however, will focus on the Second Amendment, and that is one of the rights that is expressly enumerated among the first ten amendments to the Constitution. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. We'll be right back after a quick break. We are speaking with Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute, about the Second Amendment. Bob, imagine how fortunate we are that they did actually write down the Bill of Rights. Can you imagine in today's world if those rights, which we know are natural law rights, they, they are ours by dint of our humanity and they're divine in origin, 
okay? Can you imagine in today's world uh, that those rights would be stripped and stolen from us uh, as quickly as, as anything you can imagine? And, and what protects us is the fact that our founders were smart enough to write those things down. It's sort of like saying, yeah, we all know that these rights belong to you. It's not even necessary in our time, they are saying to themselves, to write them down. But in our, in our day right now, if those rights weren't w- written down, I think we'd be in an awful lot of trouble. Well, we may be in an awful lot of trouble anyway, but <laughs> I certainly agree with you that without the enumeration of the rights in the Bill of Rights, we would have been in far greater trouble. And to imagine what could have happened, look what uh, our modern legislatures uh, have done with the powers of the federal government. Of course, the Constitution was designed to limit federal powers, and yet we have gone far beyond uh, what has been authorized by the framers and what is enumerated among the uh, federal government's uh, powers as set forth in Article One, Section well, 8 of the Constitution. Well, that's really so key. Article One, Section 8 really said, here's what you can do, and you can't do anything else. Uh, and what I love about the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, the the Tenth Amendment just said everything that we didn't give to the federal government belongs to the states and the people of the states, as you well know. And the Ninth Amendment says, basically, we're not perfect. We may have left some things out, but that doesn't mean the federal government has the right to do them. Indeed. Uh, so, indeed, um, I still think that uh, when you look at what has gone on, um, it's it's just a darn good thing those things are written down. At least we can point to something in writing and say, here is in our contract, It's these things are written down. So let's yes. talk about the Second Amendment. You know, I always used to question folks, uh, what are the four most important words in the Second Amendment? And to me, they are shall not be infringed. And then I would say, and the most important part of the Second Amendment, what is that? And I would say the period after those four words. So let's talk about the Second Amendment. What is what is the Second Amendment to you? Uh, what's its context uh, and what's its importance? Well, it says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Um, interestingly, the Supreme Court never really did uh, tell us what the court thought that that meant until the 2008 case, uh, District of Columbia versus Heller, the court had opined about the Second Amendment in a 1939 case, uh, but that case was roundly viewed as not being very intuitive nor very analytical. So it wasn't until 2008 that Justice Scalia, writing for a very narrowly divided uh, court, told us that the Second Amendment means that we have an individual right to keep and bear arms and that the exercise of that right in the context of a militia would certainly be a sufficient cause for execution of the right, but not a necessary cause. That is to say, there were other reasons why we had that right over and above the exercise of the right uh, as a part of a militia service. And included among those other reasons would be things like self-defense and hunting and even things like target prostitutes or shooting competitions. So there were many reasons uh, to have the right to keep and bear arms, um, and uh, the Militia Clause was included in the Second Amendment because it was one of the reasons that was particularly controversial at the time of the framing. I know 
uh, Bob, that you are a textualist, that you believe in the words of the Constitution. And a lot of people in looking at the Second Amendment will seize on some of those words as limiting uh, the gun rights as opposed to expanding them. So what did a well-regulated militia mean at the time that was written? Well, the term well-regulated actually means properly uh, regulated. And interestingly, the folks that uh, are seeking to have ever greater gun controls, I think uh, it's fair to say that they read the Second Amendment uh, backwards. The Second Amendment is about government inaction, that is, preventing government from disarming citizens. The gun controllers read the amendment as if it were to prescribe government action. They read it as if it said to ensure a well-regulated militia the right to keep and bear arms may be infringed. It doesn't say that at all. It says the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And if you'll notice from Article 1, Section 8, Congress has the power to call forth the militia, to organize and arm and discipline the militia, and the only power that the states have is the appointment of officers in training the militia in accordance with the discipline prescribed by Congress. So the right to keep and bear arms could not have deterred federal tyranny if it were confined to a federal militia, because the federal militia allows you to keep and bear arms only as government shall dictate. So there had to be a right that extended beyond militia service. And the background of that, interestingly, is that the Anti-Federalists wanted three things before ratifying. They didn't want a standing army. They didn't want federal control. That is, they wanted state control over the militia. And they wanted the Bill of Rights, as you mentioned earlier. The federal response to get the Anti-Federalists to ratify was this. Don't worry about a standing army because we're going to have a militia. Don't worry about federal control of the militia, even though that's what the Constitution prescribes, because we are going to have armed individuals, and that will obviate concern over a federal militia. And to make sure that we do have armed individuals, we will have a Bill of Rights that, among other things, will guarantee the right of individuals to be armed. So the Second Amendment could not be intended to eliminate the right that was central to the Federalist position in getting the Anti-Federalists uh, to ratify the Constitution. A lot has been made of Jefferson's comments about the uh, Second Amendment. Uh, what is your view of, from a historical perspective and a constitutional perspective about such comments about the tree of liberty having to be watered with the blood of tyrants and patriots and things of that nature. Cause Jefferson obviously was a big proponent of the right to keep and bear arms. Yes. Well, one obvious and maybe at the time the paramount purpose of the second amendment was to ensure against a tyrannical government bearing in mind, of course, that the whole idea behind the American revolution was to escape the tyranny that had been visited upon us by, uh, uh, by Britain. Uh, so by allowing the people to be armed, uh, we took some steps toward ensuring that we would not have a tyrannical government because the people would have the means to resist a, a tyrannical government. So that was indeed among the original purposes of the Second Amendment, but it was not the only purpose of the Second Amendment. It was also meant to 
codify our natural right to self-defense. And so the very fact that a militia clause appears in the Second Amendment was only because there was this great controversy over federal versus state control of the militia and over the extent to which armed individuals would be a precaution against a federally controlled militia and standing armies. Uh, The real purpose of the Second Amendment, in addition to ensuring against the radical government, was to allow armed individuals to protect themselves against anything, against incursion of their rights by government or incursion of their rights by other individuals. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything gonna be all right this morning.